Welcome to Question Period. Hope you're doing well. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on our program, Prisoner and Pawn. Randomly arresting Canadians doesn't give you leverage over the government of Canada anywhere in the world. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau refuses to release Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou in exchange for the two Canadians imprisoned in China. Is that the right call after 19 high-profile Canadians urge him to release her? What does that mean for the fate of the two Michaels? Today, Vina Najibullah, the wife of Michael Covert, joins us with her response to the Prime Minister. And then, one of the 19 people who wrote that letter to the PM, former Canadian diplomat Bob Fowler, who himself was kidnapped and imprisoned by Al-Qaeda, debates the former National Security Advisor Dick Fadden, who argues the PM is right to say no. Then, RCMP in the hot seat. The average person can broad jump their height. So, of course, how many six-foot people do we hire? And there are people in all different cultures that may not be six feet. Calls for the RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky to step down grow after she badly missed the mark when trying to illustrate examples of systemic racism in the ranks. Is she the wrong person to lead systemic change? Quebec MP Greg Fergus, the man who was questioning Commissioner Lucky at that moment, is here with his view. And then lawyer and Indigenous rights activist Pam Palmer joins the scrum with her call for Lucky to be removed. Plus, Jay Hill, a 17-year former Conservative MP, is now leading the Wexit movement. He joins us on why he wants to break up the country. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. No deal, no prisoner swap. In his most direct language yet, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau slammed the door on the possibility of releasing Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou, who's currently under house arrest in her multi-million dollar mansion in Vancouver, in exchange for the release of the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, the two Canadians who have spent almost 600 days in a Chinese jail in direct retaliation for Meng's arrest. Trudeau's rejection came after a group of 19 prominent Canadians, including ministers and leaders from all parties and diplomats, urged the Prime Minister to make a deal with China. Remember, under the Extradition Act, they argue, the Justice Minister does have the legal authority to intervene at any stage and end the extradition case. But the Prime Minister says it's not a matter of could, but should the Minister intervene, and Trudeau says doing so would set a dangerous precedent and endanger the safety of Canadians abroad. It would reward, essentially, hostage diplomacy. Is the government right to take such a hard line, or should they be keeping their options open? What else can the government do to secure the release of the two Michaels? Joining me now is Vina Najibullah. She is Michael Kovrig's wife, though they are separated now. She's been fighting for his release for over 560 days. Vina, welcome to the program. I know it's a very difficult time, and I profoundly thank you for joining us. I can't imagine how difficult. What was your reaction? when you heard the Prime Minister flatly reject the notion that he would intervene in exchange to get the two Michaels out. Thank you for having me on the program, Evan. Um, it has been a really difficult few days, and it's been a difficult 18 months, as you said, um, but we're very glad that we took the difficult step to come forward and to tell a little bit more of Michael's story and 
to uh, invite the government, to push the government to move beyond there are no options to a real considerations of options. So even though I'm disappointed that the prime minister said no to this particular solution and a proposal that imminent Canadians put forward, I am glad that we're finally having the conversation on what can be done and options that can be explored to resolve Michael's prolonged and painful detention. Okay, let, let's talk about that. In your mind and in these 19 eminent Canadians' minds, the Justice Minister should intervene. What, what do you think should be done now, Vina? Should the Justice Minister intervene? I think what's important before we get to that question is one thing that the Prime Minister talked about, which I wholeheartedly agree with, is that in securing Michael's freedom, we also need to make sure that this never happens again, that no Canadian finds themselves in this situation again. And, and believe me, having gone through this experience, I would never wish on any other Canadian family to experience what we have experienced for the last 565 days. But what I also believe is that we cannot ensure the protection of Canadians in the future at the cost of Michael's freedom today. I believe there are ways to make sure Canadians are more protected when they travel abroad in the future. And we can do that by learning important lessons from this experience. Lessons that I don't think we learned from the Garrett's experience when the same thing happened to their, in their situation. Mm -hmm. I believe that we can put in place protocols, international protocols for dealing with hostage diplomacy so that when, if and when this happens again, we don't have to spend months rallying international support, that there will be actually a system in place, uh, a multilateral agreement or a platform where countries can come together and say this kind of behavior is not enough. So in other words, what I'm saying is we can do both. This isn't a question of we need to do everything we can to release Michael or we protect Canadians in the future. Both have to be on the table, and the government has a responsibility to do both. But what is your response to the Prime Minister and others who say, if Canada at this moment decides, okay, we're going to release Meng Wanzhou in exchange for the two Michaels, China will see this as a reward for hostage diplomacy. And that could, that they say, this is great. Anytime we have a dispute with Canada, we'll just do what they did to your husband and arrest them and throw them in a prison. The situation is a lot more complex than that, Evan. China is very difficult to influence when it comes to their decision-making. And history teaches us that what we do in the situation may or may not influence what they do in the future. Again, in the Garrett's case, which is the only historic precedent we have, although there have been other countries that have dealt with this, Canada did not acquiesce or, or give in, so to speak. And this has happened again, right? So... And furthermore, we have to note that this, while it's arbitrary what China has done, it's an arbitrary detention, it is not random in a sense that they have reacted to something that happened here on December 1. So and there are questions on whether or not that extradition should have even gone ahead. And this week, I and others have invited a conversation to look at that. So although what China has done is unconscionable and should have never happened, it didn't happen in the vacuum. It's a lot more complex than we're just giving in to bullying. There's more to this story, and we have to look at the whole story. Okay, now the Prime Minister has said to you, I I'm not doing this. I'm not going to, the Justice Minister's not intervening. What other tools can Canada do right now to get your husband and Michael Spavar home? 
that is the question of the day, Evan. And I hope that now that we have started a conversation on options and real solutions rather than just we can't and our hands are tied, I would like that to be the next thing that we focus our minds on. Uh, I know it's very easy for people to criticize, um, but one of the ways that I approach life is that when I feel something needs to be criticized, I do that by creating alternatives. So let's create alternatives. And that is a question I hope that the prime minister and others in government are seriously engaging with now. My only plea is that all options have to be considered, that at a time when Canada's leverage is limited, let's not close existing options because of a misunderstanding of our own rule of law system. And that became very clear this week, that our extradition uh, environment, our the rule of law environment and the extradition treaty allow for a much more hands-on approach for right. the Minister of Justice. And the fact that that took so long, Evan, to get really clear on, is it's heartbreaking for me. And what I hope that we learn from this is that as we move forward, let's not preemptively close our own options and reduce our own leverage. Let's keep everything on the table. Let's be pragmatic. Absolutely, we have to be principled, but we also have to be pragmatic. There is no easy way out of this. There is no cost-free solution. We have to pay a price. The question becomes who pays the highest price. And at the moment, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor are paying that price. And I believe Canadians understand that that is fundamentally unjust and unfair. And if there's something we can do, we have to do it. Vina, just before I let you go, uh, we saw some letters that Michael has written you. I know they're all censored, yeah. but he, he does get a chance to write letters. Give us a sense of how he's coping with the, the charges uh, and the new developments. What's his state? I think Canadians really would like to know how he's doing. So the last letter that uh, we got from him, Evan, uh, was before he would have heard about the charges. So. Uh, that was actually one of the most heartbreaking things for me last week, was imagining Michael receiving those news and processing that all alone. Having not seen a consular official since January, having not had any visits with a lawyer, that is heartbreaking. The letter that we did get, he wrote in the beginning of June, and um, it also expresses a deep sense of frustration with the even greater isolation that he was experiencing before. I mean, his confinement before uh, the pandemic was already um, unimaginable. What has happened since the pandemic with no consular visits, very sporadic letters, he only received one letter from us between January and the time that he wrote the June letter. Um, it's been difficult. He's the kind of person that spent many, many years um, fully connected to everything that's happening in the world. In fact, that used to drive me crazy. His cell phone was attached to his hand. And now he's living in a situation that he knows nothing of what's happening. And the plea that he has for me and for others is to be relentless. Um, he has been resilient. He has been incredible. Um, but there is a limit to everything. And what really worries me is that the phase that we're in now, we have to do something. There is an urgency to his situation. I hope that became clear to Canadians this week. I am grateful for the support that we have received from around the country. And as we go into the July 1 um, holidays, as we all reflect on how grateful we are to live in a country that is peaceful, that is safe. I hope Canadians remember that there are two Canadians sitting in a jail 
and China, and all that they want is to come home. And I hope we will find a way to bring them home. Vina Najibullah, powerful words. I want to thank you. Your advocacy is tireless, and the personal cost to you and your loved ones is incalculable as well. I really appreciate you joining us this morning. Thanks so much as we think about you and your family. Thank you so much, Evan. All right. Coming up on our program, the pressure is on for the Prime Minister to arrange that prisoner swap we just spoke about in exchange for the release of the two Canadians. Justin Trudeau, as we just said, said no. Is it the right approach? The former CSIS director and National Security Advisor to Prime Ministers Harper and Trudeau, Rich Dick Fadden, and the former diplomat, Robert Fowler, who signed that letter and himself was a prisoner of Al-Qaeda in Africa, are going to debate this next. Stay right here with Question Period. I respect the distinguished Canadians who put forward uh, that letter, uh, but I deeply disagree with them. The idea of solving a short-term situation uh, by creating a precedent that demonstrates to China that all they or another country has to do is randomly arrest a handful of Canadians to put political pressure on a government to do what we want, even uh, by going against the independence of our justice system, would endanger the millions of Canadians who live and travel overseas every single year. So the Prime Minister flatly rejected calls from 19 prominent Canadians, including former ministers, diplomats and leaders from across party lines, to release Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou in exchange for the release of the two Michaels who have been in a Chinese detention prison for more than 560 days. The group argues that there's a provision in the Federal Extradition Act allowing for the Justice Minister to intervene directly in the case and that he should do so immediately. The Prime Minister, though, pushed back, saying this would legitimize China's uh, hostage diplomacy. So, should the Prime Minister arrange for a prisoner swap, or would this hand China a big win and undermine the international rule of law? Let's bring in two special guests to find out. Robert Fowler is one of the signatories of the letter to the Prime Minister. He's a former diplomat. He was Canada's ambassador to the United Nations. He and his colleague were kidnapped by Al-Qaeda in 2009 while serving as the United Nations representative to Niger. He spent 130 days as a captive in the desert, and he wrote about his experience in a harrowing book called A Season in Hell, My 130 Days in the Sahara with Al-Qaeda. Also joining us is Dick Fadden, the former director of CSIS and the national security advisor to both Prime Minister Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau. Gentlemen, a pleasure to have both of you on the program, and I hope you and your families are well. Bob Fowler, I'll start with you. Um, you know what it's like to be kidnapped in a foreign country, so you know what the two Michaels are going through in a sense. Um, what did you make of the prime minister's rejection of, of the letter, saying you're flat out wrong, we should not intervene in the, in the Meng Wanzhou case? Well, uh, to use the Prime Minister's words, um, or word, I found it disappointing. I believe that the absolute first responsibility of government is to protect the safety and welfare of its citizens. We have two uh, very decent men held in appalling circumstances, and yes, it's hard to differentiate that from what I went through, although they've been there four times longer than I was lying in the Sahara. Um, but I believe that we owe them uh, an obligation to bend every effort we can to, to, to get them free. I don't think Dick and I disagree that uh, the government could end Meng, Meng's extradition. Uh, we do disagree, perhaps, whether they should. Uh, 
Um, I just do not buy the argument one little bit that what Canada does in this matter is going to cause China's traditionally bad behavior to get better or worse. It's not. Let's not take ourselves too seriously. I'm not hubris all around. They're going to continue behaving badly, whatever we do. So let's get these guys out. Uh, let me go to Dick Fadden. You've heard arguments. The first priority is to free these two guys. Why do you believe, Dick Fadden, that the Prime Minister is right that this would reward China and maybe have longer-term consequences? Well, I think basically we shouldn't give in to blackmail and to bullying, whether the, the bullying or the blackmail is from a state, a terrorist group, or a criminal group. I just don't think states should do that. <clears throat> I agree with Bob that we should do everything we possibly can short of that to try and bring the two Michaels home. And as I think I've said on occasion, I don't think the government has done anywhere near as much as it can do short of returning Ms. Meng. Uh, we tried the quiet diplomatic route. It hasn't worked. I think there are a variety of things that we can do to signify that this is a serious matter for us and we need to pursue it. I think the government has entrenched itself in the view that intervening in the judicial process would be a violation of the principles of the rule of law. And whether that's true or not, the perception of that is now so deeply entrenched that I don't think it's in the national interest for us to do what Bob and his colleagues are suggesting. Bob, will you please respond to that in the Prime Minister's contention that this will endanger future Canadians, that any time China doesn't like something, they'll just pluck someone off the street and toss them in jail and wait, it, wait us out. Evan, that will happen no matter what we do or not. In, in other words, whether we release among um, the Chinese will, as they have, act in the, China, in the Chinese interest. They will capture people if that's what they decide to do. We all think it's deplorable, but we can't stop it. Um, and, and Dick, Dick uh, talked about giving into blackmail, and of course nobody wants to give into blackmail. But I would point out that virtually every single one of our allies um, uh, is faced, has been faced with this kind of situation many times. With, with terrorists, with kidnappers, and with rogue governments, and they all blink. Every single one of them blinks. So to try to pretend that Canada should be unique in its stand on principle is simply preposterous. Dick, what do you make of that? I mean, does that mean that the, the international rules of law on this kind of stuff are essentially a sham? What do you make of that, Dick? Well, I think that nothing is black and white. I mean, international relations and diplomacy, I think Bob will agree with me on this, is gray. It's always gray. But I think there's a distinction to be drawn between China, a superpower, behaving terribly on a whole range of fronts, playing hostage diplomacy, and blackmailing a country. It's not quite the same as any number of other instances. I think we should resist this particular case. Moreover, as I said a minute ago, we've done virtually little to signify how irritated we are. We've tried traditional diplomacy. It hasn't worked. We can, cut the, number of, we can cut the number of visas we've given. We could invoke Magnitsky. We can do a whole variety of things. The government needs to up its game. I totally agree with that. I just don't think we should go so far as to say to the Chinese, yep, we've had it. Bring the guys back. Having said that, I want to be clear. I've dealt with some cases like this, both in my career as NSA and when I was in foreign affairs many moons ago. I can just imagine what those two are going through and what their families are going through. This is not a lack of compassion on my side, on my part. 
I just don't think it's in the broader national interest at this point in time for us to do this. Bob, you know what it's like. Um, if we don't release Hmong and they're staying in that prison, Bob Fowler, do you believe their lives are in danger? Well, their mental health is certainly in danger. Um, I don't think China will execute them, if that's what you're saying, but I think it is very possible, even likely, if we do nothing, China will um, uh, subject them to a mock uh, trial and condemn them to a long prison sentence in, in very unpleasant circumstances. Look, this is an issue of humanity versus principle. And I, I get very nervous when nations invoke principle. Um, one, one further point, Evan, if I may, uh, that we raised in that letter is my, this issue of uh, Hmong on the one hand and the two Michaels on the other has totally infected our relationship with China and indeed our consideration of what that relationship should look like. We need to reset that relationship. Certainly, I would reset it. In a, in a very hard fashion, and I think Dick probably might agree with me. But we can't do that until we clear the table, until we remove these issues and can look at what we really want from the relationship with China and do not want. Gents, I got to leave it there. It's a fascinating discussion. Let's never lose sight of the fact that those two Michaels, as these debates go on, remain locked in that prison. Uh, Dick Fadden, Bob Fowler, uh, both of you always appreciate your perspectives. Thanks, gentlemen. Thanks, Good day. Coming up, the RCMP commissioner raised some eyebrows during her appearance at the House Public Safety Committee this week. She said systemic racism, yeah, it does exist in the force, but then she gave a very puzzling example. Some are now calling for her removal. We asked the Quebec Liberal MP who asked the questions of who and is the Parliament's Black Caucus Chair, Greg Fergus, is Commissioner Lucky the person to change that force? Stay right here with Question Period. I have widened my lens and had a better um, uh, sort of changing my perspective in the sense that um, there is systemic racism in the RCMP. So Canada's top cop finally admitted systemic racism exists in the RCMP after previously denying it in a series of national media interviews. But when grilled by members of the House Safety Committee this week, RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky struggled to give an example of what systemic racism actually looks like. Instead, in a stunning moment, she compared systemic racism to a mandatory fitness test being easier for taller participants. She was immediately corrected by Quebec Liberal MP Greg Fergus, who also chairs Parliament's Black Caucus, who pointed out she might be referring to systemic discrimination, but not systemic racism. Lucky then deferred to another member to provide an example. That led, has led to calls for Lucky to be removed from her post, that she's not the person who can lead the changes needed in her force. To talk about that and for calls for widespread police reform, including calls to defund the forces like the RCMP. Greg Fergus joins us now, uh, the Liberal MP who was at the heart of this thing. Mr. Fergus, first of all, thank you. I hope you and the family are well. When RCMP Commissioner Lucky, who was prepared for that committee meeting, for your questions, uh, she'd already had to backtrack once on the issue of systemic racism, gave you that example of the broad jump. What did you think? 
Well, uh, I didn't know what to think at, at first. Uh, I wasn't certain where she was going to be going with this. And then it, it sort of dawned on me that either uh, she didn't understand uh, the question or uh, she was giving an example of systemic discrimination. Um, and that uh, what I, where I wanted to go with this was for her to give an example and to talk about what would be her definition of systemic racism. Right. But... She'd already struggled with that the week before in a series of interviews. Then you asked her for an example. She blew it. Then you said, okay, can you give us a better example? And then the next moment, she threw it over to her colleague. In other words, saying, I, I guess I don't really know. Does that reveal to you that she still, after all this time, does not understand what systemic racism is? I think what it really points out to uh, Evan is that uh, she, it, this is a tough issue. This is a tough nut to, to, to crack. Um, when you talk about unconscious bias, uh, when you really don't want to uh, admit that it that it exists, or if you have a, a, a sort of a cloudy definition of what it means, uh, it, it's hard for you to then start really thinking uh, the way that people who would be victims of systemic racism or systemic discrimination, uh, how easily they would see it. It's hard for you to see it when, when you're not the one facing it. Uh, so what it really points out is that this is a tough issue. And you know, we're seeing systemic uh, racism uh, in our police forces. We're seeing it in all our institutions across Canada. We're seeing it in politics. We're seeing it in the media. Um, we're seeing it uh, all over. And it's, it's, it's an issue which Canadians are struggling with now and figuring out how we're going to get to it. I don't think uh, Commissioner Lucky is any different from, uh, from, from many people who are just beginning to, uh, to, to wrap their minds around this issue. But she's the head of Canada's National Police Force. She was appointed two yeah. years ago. She, her job is actually to root this out. Now you've admitted she doesn't really understand this any better than the average person, and yet she's supposed to lead a transformation. Do you still have faith, after all that she's done, that she can lead the RCMP, or should she be removed and let someone else who clearly has a deeper understanding of this issue take charge? Well, that's a that's a tough question to to, to answer, and the reason why, uh, Evan, I'm I'm reluctant to to call for her uh, for her uh, resignation is because if you know you have to allow people to to learn to grow. Um, you know, if she were to come back to the committee again and still struggle with the issue, I think then I would probably have trouble uh, uh, having confidence in her ability to to root it out. But she always did admit that there was uh, unconscious bias. She, I think, should have been better prepared for that question. I didn't think it was an unfair question to ask. Um, but maybe from this, uh, and I'm quite confident that she and her, her, you know, the senior leadership were all realizing, okay, how do we get our heads around this? Who do we call in? What type of, uh, who do we speak to within our own forces? Who do we bring in from the outside to really get at this? Give, give her, I'm going to give her a chance to really, um, you know, it's, it's like when you fall off a bike and scrape your knee, you, you, you figure out how to do things better, at least not to repeat the same mistakes in the past. Mm -hmm. And this might give her an opportunity to really make effective changes uh, in the RCMP. So, some are pretty frustrated, not just because it's her words, but let's oh, just look at me. the action. It, the, the, it, it's tough. The RCMP looked at the tape, uh, the use of force on Chief Alan Adam 
in March. They initially thought it was justified when it was made public. Uh, the charges were dropped. This is a commissioner who did not reveal that one of the officers involved in that case, Constable Simon Seguin, was already facing charges of assault and was subjected to an internal discipline process, not made public. This is a commissioner who, when asked by you, did not cite the missing and murdered Aboriginal women and girls file as a case of systemic racism, did not cite the stat about 36% uh, of deaths at the hands of RCMP Indigenous people. With all those things, why... I'm just wondering, and I, I appreciate your, your generous interpretation, your hope that she changes, but when Indigenous people in Canada are more than 10 times likely to be shot and killed by a police officer since 2017 yeah. than a white person, why have faith for and her learning curve and why not the fierce urgency of the now to make a change? Please don't mistake my, uh, my generosity with not believing in the fierce urgency of now. This is the reason why we pushed out as a, a parliamentary black caucus a very clear roadmap of actions which we need to take now um, and part of that deals with with justice part of that deals with uh, with policing uh, don't please don't don't interpret that at all as being soft on that issue I'm very hard on the issue but the point is is that this is systemic discrimination and I hate to tell you uh, Evan a lot of people uh, are guilty of it and uh, if I keep on uh, tossing out everybody who doesn't step up to the standards that I would like to see there's going to be few, very few people to work with. Uh, so I got to work with what I have. I got to help try to uh, change minds, shape opinions. I have to invite people to be part of the conversation, as opposed to just you know, you know, mm. tossing out anybody who doesn't meet uh, uh, the standard of excellence that I would set. This is the cruel aspect of being uh, a black Canadian or a, per a person of color or an indigenous person. We have to be patient. Uh, and we have to work with what we have. And let's try to change minds. And the best way to do that is to work with it mm -hmm. uh, and to get people into that spot. And if we see an unwillingness for people to, 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 to get on board, then we have a problem. And, sir, no one's questioning your understanding of this uh, much deeper than mine. I'm, and I, I absolutely know your commitment and deep understanding of this, sir. I appreciate your time, no, Mr. No, 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 that's I, I, I don't it. take it that way at all. <laughs> no, no, hey, but it's a fair point, and I appreciate it very much, mm -hmm. Mr. Fergus. Thank you so much for your time and your perspective. I appreciate it very much. You're very welcome. All right, uh, coming up, the West wants out. Can the new interim leader of the Wexit Canada Party inspire Western Canadians to join his movement? We'll find out when a former MP of 17 years, Jay Hill, joins us next. Why does he want to break up the country? We'll find out. Well, he wants to break up the country. Jay Hill, who served as a Conservative MP for 17 years, including as a House leader and a government whip for Prime Minister Stephen Harper, has become the interim leader of the separatist Wexit Party. He replaces Peter Downing, who recently resigned. Why does the West want out? And can a party that wants the West to leave the Canadian Federation inspire a national movement? Let's find out. Joining me now is the interim Wexit Canada leader, Jay Hill. Jay Hill, always good to see you, sir. I hope you and your loved ones are well. Can you tell me, you, know, you were elected 17 years as an MP. We've known each other for a long time. You served uh, three parties. You served in cabinet. Why do you want to break up the country? When Justin Trudeau was elected, largely because of the Maritimes and Quebec and Ontario, and in fact, when it comes to Ontario, it was more, like, more just Toronto. Uh, so it was very clear then 
that the West is once again completely out of step with central Canada. And because that's where the votes are and the greatest number of seats are and the greatest number of senators are, uh, it's clear that we're never going to get a fair deal, no matter how hard people like Jason Kenney or Scott Moe try to get us a better deal. Uh, we can achieve greater autonomy. I wish them well with that. Uh, but I don't think we're going to get a fair deal on some very important files for the West. But, look, and I, we talked about equalization. I, I, it's hard for me to say, like, the biggest majority in Canadian history was conservative Brian Mulroney. You served with Stephen Harper 10 years as a Western-based conservative government. The, the equalization formula, which I know that you believe is deeply unfair to the West, is the formula that was negotiated by Stephen Harper's government. You served in that government. It's essentially your government's formula that was supposed to correct all that. Uh, I... I and I just want people to understand, the West doesn't pay into the equalization formula. No one does. It's a tax. And the, Alberta pays a lot more because the income per capita in Alberta was more than $76,000 in 2019, by far the highest in Canada. So some might argue, gee, I mean, I, I'm not going to dis discredit the economic carnage going on in Alberta now, but highest per capita income equalization formula designed by Stephen Harper when you were elected. What's wrong with this, Jay Hill? Well, clearly that equalization formula was meant to uh, try to appease where the votes are. It doesn't matter whether it's a conservative government under uh, Aaron O'Toole or, or, or a liberal government under Justin Trudeau. Those governments are going to have to attempt to appease, whether it's with the equalization formula or wh whatever it's with, are going to have to try to appease where the votes are, where the greatest number of seats are, where the greatest number of senators are, if they want to remain in power and further their agenda. So it's always a trade-off, even for the government under Stephen Harper, right. where I served. But and what I'm suggesting to you is that I personally am fed up with it, and I think a lot of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of, of Westerners are equally frustrated and fed up and looking for an alternative. When you uh, talk about the per capita income, I've never seen the data about whether that is representative of the oil patch worker that works a 12-hour day, seven days a week, or whether it's about a farmer, like I was just up helping my brother on the farm, putting in the crop, working 16 hours a day. Uh, I don't know of too many civil servants, government workers in Ottawa that work those kind of hours. So what you're suggesting is a, a type of socialism where we take it from people that work hard and give it to people that don't work as hard. Mr. Hill, I'm not suggesting socialism. I'm, I'm simply saying it's called a graduated tax, and people work hard all over the country, sir, to be fair. I'm not going to pit one province against another, as, as you appear to be doing. But what would happen in this new country? What, would, what about indigenous nations in, in the West who have treaties with the crown? What would happen to their land? Well, you know, uh, Evan, in fairness, there is so many issues, and I'm not naive enough to believe this would happen tomorrow. And neither are the group that work with me on our board of directors, which we just formulated a week and a half ago. Uh, we are very understanding of the hurdles and the challenges that face, and the First Nations and the questions that surround their treaty rights, uh, you know, and the fiduciary responsibility of the Crown, um, you know, is just one of many, many hurdles that would have to be overcome if we can convince Western Canadians uh, to force their provincial governments to hold referenda and ultimately achieve winning conditions where Western provinces vote for an independent nation. If all that comes about, 
there would be years of negotiations on many, many issues, just as you're suggesting. Last question, Jay Hill. Uh, we may have an election within the next year. It's a minority government. Will Wexit Canada be running candidates, and how many? And are you worried that what you could do is split the right vote, uh, and you actually may get more Liberals, more NDP, more progressives in? Well, yes, uh, to answer the first part of your question, we would hope to run some candidates. Uh, we can't be fully registered with Elections Canada until we run at least one candidate, whether it's in a by-election or in a general election. Whether, I mean, if uh, Prime Minister Trudeau decides to call a snap, what I view an unnecessary election this fall, if he does, I'm not sure that we will be in a position to uh, run a, a credible campaign. Uh, that would be a board decision at that time. Um, the second part of your question, I would ask Westerners to look at the facts of the matter currently, that they have chosen their democratic right to elect mostly, certainly on the prairies, mostly conservative members of parliament. And I'm saying, look at that and tell me what you've got for that. They uh, basically erased the presence of liberals across the prairies. I don't express a, an opinion on that, whether that's good or bad, one way or the other. But we basically have a liberal minority government elected by the East and Central Canada, Toronto primarily. And they, to our estimation, they are absolutely destroying the country. And what can the Conservative Party do about it? So if we had a dozen less Conservative MPs from the prairies, what difference would it make? Well, we'll find out if the party has any traction in the movement. Jay Hill, interim leader of Wags of Canada. Uh, Michelle, always good to have you on the program, and I appreciate the conversation. Thank you, sir. Thank you, and thanks for the questions. All right, that is Jay Hill. Coming up, though, RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky failed to come up with a single example of systemic racism within the RCMP when grilled by MPs at committee. Is she the right person to lead the change she says she wants in the force? if she can't even recognize the problem. The Scrum is next. Indigenous lawyer and activist Pam Pullman will be our special guest. Stay with us. So, the RCMP commissioner now says systemic racism does exist within the RCMP, but when she was pressed to give an example of it at a parliamentary committee, Brenda Lucky floundered, as we spoke about earlier. She cited a physical fitness test that favors tall candidates as an example. Now, after repeated missteps on this issue, can Commissioner Lucky be trusted to bring about the systemic changes even she is calling for in the force. Let's bring in the scrum to talk about that and the coming fiscal snapshot, whatever that means. Molly Thomas is a CTV journalist. She joins us. Joyce Napier is CTV's Ottawa Bureau Chief. And our special guest today is the Chair of Indigenous Governance at Ryerson University, a lawyer and activist, Pam Palmer. Great to see all of you here today. Pam, I'll start with you. Uh, we had Greg Fergus, a Liberal MP, who had questioned Brenda Lucky on the show earlier. He says, you know what, we've got to give her a chance to learn and grow. You wrote an article saying she's got to resign. Why does the commission of the RCMP, Brenda Lucky, have to resign? Because this is a matter of life and death. This isn't about her personal growth and whether she gets to take a journey of learning on anti-racism. People are dying at the hands of RCMP. They're being brutalized. They're being over-incarcerated at alarming rates. 
she hasn't taken action. She's been in that post for more than two years. She promised to deal with abuse. She promised to deal with um, all the harassment within the RCMP and racism. And she also promised to do better by murder to missing Indigenous women and girls. She promised to leave no rock unturned in her mission to combat racism. And she hasn't done it. And the, the evidence is in the videos, it's in the pictures, it's in the increasing incarceration rates, the disproportionate levels of RCMP killing black and indigenous peoples. And so she needs to go. She can continue her learning journey somewhere else. Uh, Molly, what do you make of that, of that and, the, and the spot that she's in right now? I think she should definitely fire her PR person. Listen, the, the first time we talked about this, uh, she was struggling with the systemic racism definition. You know, I had grace for that. The, the, you know, then she came full circle saying she's surrounding herself with Indigenous people and, and, and racialized Canadians to get a better understanding of what that means and how she can make changes and acknowledging it. And then you go in front of a parliamentary committee and the most basic thing you need to know is what is systemic racism and what is an example? Uh, my mind was baffled that she wasn't able to give us a concrete answer that made any kind of sense. And I think one way, uh, I'm not sure if I'd go as far as Pam and say she needs to be gone, but I do think she needs to diversify her executive team, which which, by the way, other than one person, for what I've seen, is all white. Joyce, what, what do you make of the fact that she's tasked with leading a force to root out systemic racism, and she just, first she didn't know the definition, then she couldn't provide an example of it. Should people trust that she is up for the job? I, look, I don't know if she's up for the job. What I, I think that Pam has a very good point. It's not what she says, and is she capable of defining. It's not the words, because, you know, maybe... You know, not everybody does well in those, in those circumstances. So is she competent for the job is the question that I would want to ask rather than can she define this, that, or the other. Can she do this job? And the job means bringing a, a police force that is a little bit retrograde, let's face it, very retrograde, into the 21st century. Uh, get with the program, RCMP, and if she can do that, then keep her there. If she's incapable of doing that, put somebody else in her place that can. Pam, what would you need to see to prove that? Well, I mean, aside from her and all of her deputy commissioners going, there would need to be a complete uh, fundamental destructuring of the RCMP. First of all, we need to defund all racism in the RCMP, which means you know, defunding the immunity that they have. So no more legislative immunity, um, no more of us taxpayers paying out all the class actions, all the civil lawsuits. They need to be held accountable for what they do. We need to clean house. And the only way we're going to be able to do that is to open up the books, to really declassify what's happening at the RCMP. That includes disciplinary files, investigations, records, all of the independent so-called uh, civilian oversight, all of it, and then start rooting out the problem. No more surveillance, no more militarization of a, of a law force that, in, that is essentially doubling what we have in the military. And like all of it, hundreds of millions of dollars can be saved by Canadians uh, by really going through and cleaning house at the RCMP. And that's not going to happen if they're all pulling around together and saying, look, there might be a little bit of unconscious bias. 
Maybe we'll, you know, uh, have some diverse training and some cultural sensitivity awareness. That's not going to cut it. Right. People are dying, and we need to get at the root of it. Now, you talked about the books, so I just want to turn over. Uh, Molly, let me start with you, because I just want to speak about Canada's federal books. The, a major credit agency, Fitch's, downgraded Canada's credit rating from AAA to AA+. Not something a lot of Canadians talk about, but we've got a fiscal snapshot, not a full fiscal update coming on July 8th. The uh, parliamentary budget watchdog is deeply concerned about the amount of spending. By the same token, the government saying there's an incredible amount of need. What do we? How do we read into the downgrade and, and maybe what it means about the supports that have been going on in the last hundred days? I think people need to understand that we were in an economic storm before the pandemic and now we're in an economic tornado. Remember, Fitch put out a warning last year to Canada looking at provincial and federal debts saying there's a good chance you could be downgraded. Then, boom, the pandemic hits and we're in an economic tornado. We're tr putting out billions of dollars, understandably, to help Canadians. But, you know, uh, the Trudeau government has been really uh, easy, you know, to, to tell Canadians we're really good with our debt to GDP ratio. We're doing good with the G7 countries, just looking at the federal debt. However, it's like looking in a mirror and saying I'm healthy, but not understanding the things that are weighing you down. You have to put provincial debt in there. You have to put municipal debt in there. And you have to consider personal debt, which is extremely high in this country. And so when you put all of that together, you say, are we fiscally healthy? No, you add a pandemic on top of that, and it makes for a disaster. Joyce, where are you on this? Well, you know, uh, what Fitch was saying as well is that the lack of fiscal update or, or budget um, so the, the, the future of, of Canada's, or fiscal future anyway, is a little bit murky. Canada spent a lot of money. We don't even know if the money that's the CERB and, the, and, the, and, and all the, the wage subsidies and all the other programs will in fact at the end of this, at the other side of the tunnel, Will this have helped the economy? And I, I would suspect yes, very much so. Uh, and that's when we will know. Mm. But until there is a fiscal update or a snapshot, as it is called, we really don't know what the picture, even three months from now, will look like. How many will go bankrupt? Will the economy return? How long will it take it to return? So there's a lot of questions as well. Uh, that we don't have answers to now. And even that fiscal snapshot, I love the word snapshot. I wonder <laughs> who invented it. Uh, what is it going to tell us? Uh, all right, last word to you, Pam. Well, I think we also have to put it in the general context. A double A rating is actually really good, and the outlook that they projected is stable. They expect that Canada's economy will recover. This isn't unexpected that we would be engaged in extra spending because of a worldwide pandemic. Every country is, and generally Canada's strong. But we also have to put that in context. We don't just govern by credit ratings. We can't just always be focused on economic growth. There's no such thing as endless growth. We have to think about balance. What's the human cost of business as usual? We're also in the midst of trying to find ways to deal with the climate change. And, you know, we've got genocide in this country, and we've got, you know, so many crises coming towards us that we have to look at the economic and the social and find balance in there. And to be honest, this double uh, A is much better than many other countries. Canada's been rated double A for many, many years by different entities. So it's not like a disastrous thing. And I wouldn't want people to weaponize it for partisan purposes um, mm -hmm. and, and have that be a big debate in the House instead of focusing on making sure that everybody's spending widely. All right, I have to leave it there. Molly, Joyce, and Pam, great to have the three of you debating as usual. And thanks to all of you for watching our program. That's the last episode and been 
an incredibly busy six months, an incredibly busy season. We're all taking a very short break, but we will see you back as we follow the news, the continuing news cycle, looking right out to that conservative leadership race and far beyond. Take care of yourselves, hug your loved ones if it's safe, and thanks so much for sharing Sunday mornings with us. We'll see you soon.